Hello, and welcome back to Future Prairie Radio, where we look at modern futurism through the lens of art, humanity, and culture. I'm your host, Joni Whitworth, and this is Season 1, Episode 5, Super Cities, with Vivek Shandas. I was thinking about home when I first read up on Super Cities. What feels like home to you? Do you feel a certain civic pride? In this nebulous landscape of ever-shifting political boundaries, is home a state or a nation? Or is there a racial or a religious pride? Or a regional one, based not on the lines we draw, but on a shared natural or cultural beauty? Imagine if a group had the power to take your home and redefine it, to give it a new name, assess its worth and potential, and redesign its map, structure, and systems. In the long dance of history, this has happened many, many times. And it's happening again now in China. The Chinese government recently announced their intention to move forward with a long-term urban development strategy they've been considering for years. The plan will foster the rise of enormous economic regions called super cities, anchored around large central urban cores like Hong Kong, Shanghai, or Beijing, and encompassing a number of surrounding smaller cities, kind of like a county, but way bigger than any county you've ever seen or heard of. By the year 2030, China's 19 planned supercities will be connected by 26 high-speed train routes, and there's a possibility that governance models would shift to mirror the supercities. Many urban planners and economists predict supercities could transform China into the wealthiest, most productive country in the world. Sounds innovative, right? Kind of. City-states have been around since ancient Greece. Rome, Athens, Carthage, and the Italian city-states of the Renaissance were all pretty comparable to China's planned supercities, but it's the scale that's unparalleled. In a way, it's thrilling, because we've never seen urban planning theory implemented at this scale before. The supercity that's planned for the Pearl Delta area will cover 16,000 square miles. That's as big as the Netherlands. Seoul and Sao Paulo each have 10 million people. The Tokyo metro area has 40 million. We're talking about super cities with 150 million people each. I admit, I'm a little jealous. The United States is drowning in inefficiency and bureaucracy. We could never pull off a project of this scale. We can barely agree on what to name a post office. The only thing we have that's slightly on par is the Silicon Valley, but that economic region developed relatively organically. China's approach is heavy-handed. I love the sheer audacity of someone thinking they have the insight and discernment, not to mention the privilege and power, to sit there divvying up the country based on extant and potential resources, giving regions new names, new jobs, and new purposes. It's deliciously grand. And you can see why Chinese millennials are excited and proud. But it also feels a bit evil, and the plan will likely result in massive overnight gentrification. Is it the function of government to make spatial planning decisions on behalf of one billion people? Is it ethical to draw an oval on a map and say, you're the textile district, everyone here is going to make textiles. You're the rubber district, all of you make rubber. If you read The Hunger Games, this might sound familiar. China's plan hasn't gone quite so far as to designate entire super cities as being responsible for one major industry each, not yet, 
But some economists have insinuated that that degree of a top-down approach might be in the cards, and if it is, it'll be unprecedented. Coming in at the federal level, seizing property left and right by eminent domain, and telling everyone what to be and do? What could possibly go wrong? Here to help us explore the context of a super city is Vivek Shandas. My name is Vivek Shandas. He's an urban studies and planning professor, fellow of the Institute for Sustainable Solutions, and founder of the Sustainable Urban Places Research Lab. He starts us off by comparing the chaotic streets of his youth to the Western-style planned communities many of us live in today. When I'd walk to school with my mother, we would walk pretty much on the street. There was very little distinction between the sidewalk and the road where cars and every, all other forms of transport um, would exist. And so we would walk on the side of the street, and it was in the city of Bangalore, which is in South India. Some of the streets were incredibly crowded, just with people, with bicycles, with mopeds and these scooters, um, cows, with chickens, with dogs, with all of what life kind of came together in with farming and was an attempt to try to eke out space in this incredibly crowded landscape. Somehow we find a way through these very densely packed and crowded spaces and we find a way to eke out our ability to do what we want to do. People are still going to school, people are still having social arrangements made and here I am in these places that have such clear code how wide the streets have to be, how wide the sidewalks are, what's allowed and not allowed on the streets and I just have constantly been at awe at the fact that these that cities can take so many different forms and yet human Humans are roughly doing the same thing in all these places. It's really that human capacity to negotiate these landscapes for as long as humans have been on the planet, I think, that really distinguishes some of our ability to create the kinds of spaces we want to see. In the U.S. and the West, largely Western Europe, parts of Mexico and Latin America are really trying to create this very, what would conventionally be called organized set of physical features on a landscape. You know, your home, your uh, sidewalk, the space between the sidewalk and the street called a median strip, for example. Then you have your street and your potential parking on the street, um, etc. The systematic organization that the West has kind of created through this discipline of urban planning is now in a real interesting conundrum of saying, do we impose this upon places as a standard way of organizing space? Do we say that your place is a mess and it's chaotic and it's no good? And can we, in fact, just bring our system of organizing spaces in this way to you and make it more, quote, ordered? Our ideas are better than yours and therefore you need to adopt them. Maybe we'll even give you incentives or loans to be able to move forward on this type of systematic ordering of space in your cities. There is a vocal, very well-situated group of intellectuals as well as practitioners and decision makers in what we call the Global South that are really challenging these ideas and saying, actually, you know, these informal settlements that are often referred to as slums or ghettos in parts of the city or favelas in Brazil have an incredibly a uh, robust set of social interactions as what what uh, the scholars often call social capital the kind of connection between and among individuals and that that is a very strong indicator of a well-functioning society is that there is there are a lot of bonds between and among individuals the argument often goes is that 
these favelas, informal settlements, slums are highly capable of withstanding some of the most intense shocks to urban systems, whether they're economic shocks, whether they're diseases that come through, whether they're floods and, um, you know, heat waves that come through. These are, these are communities that have really well organized in their own capacities responses to these intense shocks, and they find a way to make, make it through. identify as a South Asian American. I'm an urban scholar, so a lot of what I think about is processes and, and structures of cities. And the processes often are about how fast are cities growing, how many people are moving there, how fast are sh cities shrinking, how many people are leaving, as well as kind of the demographics of cities. Like, lots of Asian cities are aging very fast. And so there's a question now, how will the system, meaning a lot of the government support for what we would call benefits and things like that, how will we support this large base of people over 60 years old that are retiring? And um, so demographically, I think about cities as a process. Um, and then economically, how does the city structure itself? What are the pulls that a city may have for jobs and for people to make livelihood, which is a big part of what's happening in China right now? China really is a tremendous force in Asia and has a lot of political, military, uh, social capital. I really think about cities as ecosystems, as places that are human dominated ecosystems. And what are the ecosystems that China is creating through either the mega regions or through the specific uh, hoku system that they have for urban residents versus rural residents. Through the policies to migrate you know, 250 million people from rural areas into urban areas. A super region is an agglomeration of multiple cities that have a common set of objectives. There is a agglomeration of industries. There's an agglomeration of demographics. There's an agglomeration of physical systems that tie together that uh, super region. It really then acts as almost a state in and of itself. Right? They have almost, in a sense, governing power because these super regions would need some form of governance. And that governance would, would enable, through incentives or penalties, certain actions to take um, precedence and priority. Then the governance layer gets put on top of this physical agglomeration, and you start seeing priorities being emphasized by super regions and other priorities being de-emphasized. From a federal point of view, we have a constitution. China has the same. They have a set of rules by which everyone has to abide. The extent to which those rules are trying to go beyond creating a safe and healthy environment, mm -hmm. to the extent that those rules that a country imposes on local governments suggest so much as we are going to create some normative outcomes. The idea that there are certain goods and certain bads beyond maintaining a safe and habitable spaces, we want to actually generate a much higher gross domestic product. And if that is one of the normative goods that the federal government is trying to maximize, then these super regions are masterful. There's a sense of excitement. I would say it's palpable. Yeah, it's palpable sense of excitement around. The cities are not that old for, for humans. Like humans have been around for tens of thousands of years, right? And cities are just a few thousand years old. And it's like we have to figure out how to structure these spaces. We don't hardly know how to govern megacities now. 
the governance structures are incredibly convoluted and incredibly difficult to understand, let alone just kind of manage all the moving parts of this increasingly complex system. Can they actually live in a habitable, healthy environment? Can they actually have deep levels of social capital that allow a community to feel connected? Can they have the sense of identity that really compels them, inspires them to actually want to give back to this super region or this place? Um, those would be a few of the indicators I would look for if they're able to pull it off. When you have urban uh, residency through a card that you hold that confirms your address, your parents, your birth date, when you hold that and it says you're a resident of Shanghai, then you have access to all the services provided by the city of Shanghai. If you have a residency card that says you're rural and you are living in Shanghai and helping to, I don't know, uh, serve tables or helping to uh, write computer code or helping to conduct interviews, whatever your particular job is, if your card says that you're a rural resident, you go to get any services, whether it's healthcare or you know education or what have you, you'll be hard pressed to find that. So you end up with a, with a, you know, 250 million people right now who are in Chinese cities who don't have an urban, kind of res, official urban residency status, and so you end up, kind of wondering, how are folks staying healthy? Like this is a large continue, this is a large population. It's larger than the remaining top 30 of the largest cities of the world. You know, you take 30 of the largest cities of the world, add them together. Every resident of every one of the largest 30 cities, and you add them together, it's less than 250 million people who are now living in cities in China who don't have access to this, to the services. How will these cities fare given the fundamental shifts happening to our global climate system? And what are the uh, ways in which cities can anticipate a future where the climate is going to be fundamentally different um, on a planetary level and that the historic, quote, norms that a city has been experiencing in terms of weather will be very different. How are these mega regions thinking about a climate uh, resiliency that would potentially keep them from achieving their objectives as a mega region? If the, the Hong Kong, Shenzhen, Guangzhou, that Pearl River Delta area of southern China, if you know they're right on the water, so we're going to see huge amounts of sea level rise that's going to affect industries, um, development that goes right up to the edge. Huh. And so either there's going to be a need to retreat from that water's edge. It's a relatively, f there are parts of it that are relatively flat. And so the uh, saltwater intrusion into soils where if there's agriculture happening there, that will be affected. The development that's happening right up to the shores will be underwater. So that's a chronic, slow shifting rise of sea level. Then you have the rivers that run through um, China that are going to either face severe drought issues, like we're seeing at the Yellow River. The Yangtze also has many different challenges in uh, terms of these fluctuations of uh, not having enough water or having a lot of water from when the rains hit and it really starts to move. So in terms of the future, when I think about cities and mega regions, part of where my mind just in almost habitually goes right now is how are they going to fare with a, with a shifting climate in the future? The jury's still out in some cases whether, you know, 
uh, Detroit, for example, pulled it off, hmm. right? In the 1900s, they had jobs, they had community, they had identity, they were inspired, you know, Ford came and brought this incredible set of opportunities into um, what was pretty much an average U.S. town, you know, and then Ford and GM and, you know, these big companies moved in, and so if you give it a 10 10 to 20 year, maybe 30, maybe 50 year timeline for Detroit, yay! If you ask people who study cities and things like that, about Detroit now, they'll recognize that it they may not have actually pulled it off. They created a monomaniacal focus on one industry and really to the detriment of many others. And so Detroit really taught us a lot about economic diversification. How do you create places that have a resiliency to these shocks of movement of labor into other parts of the world or um, different technological advances that have come up. If a hurricane comes through a mega region and takes out the power supply, that's a significant blow to a region that has focused, you know, has been one of 19 places, for example, in China that would be contributing to the gross domestic product. And if that region got cut off, they're one nineteenth less productive, which is pretty significant in the scale of global, you know, commerce and things like that. A lot of states identify as a certain kind of, you know, the garden state of New Jersey, right? right. Or the first in flight, or these little monikers that states have, and they have a almost it seems like a forced upon identity from a set of either tourist industries or something like that that are trying to create an identity. A super region, though, seems to me to be an agglomeration largely driven by an economic agenda. And the difference between an identity like a moniker for a state that, that you might have, um, the Beaver State, Beaver for, state. Ex- <laughs> for example, or a place that is identi- which is which is more of a kind of a cultural identity that's put on put on a place, as opposed to an economic identity that ties a community together. I think those would have f- fundamentally, like, different ways of structuring the, you know, buildings, roads, railways. It would have different ways that people talked about their own identity as part of this region. It may not be a unique language. It may not be a unique set of cultural practices. It may be a completely different conversation about maybe what jobs do you have or what jobs are growing or what sectors are changing. It seems to me that a super region would have to figure out what its identity is. If the intention is to grow GDP... And is 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 an attempt to really hyper specialize in kind of the current capitalist economic market system that we have. Then mega regions would be a tremendous advantage. If the intent, though, is to create identities, uh, cultural identities of people who share a common vision and share a common interest in seeing a place thrive in their own way, in the way that they define it then a mega region may be far more difficult. What would it mean for a community to maximize for happiness? Like, what would it mean to really authentically think about people's self-identified state of well-being? That would include health, you know, how well your physical body is, how well your mental body is, how well your spiritual body is, community or family or whatever you identify with as uh, your group, your kin. How well intact is that? Like, what if we were to think about happiness indices that were really about our human health and well-being in the broad sense of that and maximize towards that?
I'm going to leave you there to ponder, and I hope the remainder of your week finds you maximizing towards your own happiness index in whatever way suits you best. Thank you, Vivek, for broadening our minds as we consider what the next generation will face. Thank you to The Economist. Some of the research for this episode is from their article titled, China is trying to turn itself into a country of 19 super regions. And if you look it up, you can see some interesting maps that illustrate what we've been discussing. Thank you to everyone who attended our Future Prairie Live variety show on July 20th, and to the humanist and modern futurist artists who performed. Musician Maya Wynn, sustainable living coach Chloe Le Peltier, the Dolly Pops dance troupe, comedian Laura Ann Whitney, healer Clara Parnell, illustrator Molly Fisher, poet Ariel Cusby, dancer Beck Beveridge, chef Margot Muller, and filmmaker Anna Weltner. Our variety show is inspired by the Chautauquas of the 19th and early 20th centuries, where people from all walks of life came together to experience education, entertainment, and culture for the whole community, with speakers, teachers, musicians, and entertainers. Our next variety show will be on Friday, September 7th at 7.30 p.m. The link for tickets is on our website, futureprairie.com. Our music was mixed by DJ X Carlisa X. She's based in New Orleans. You can hear a selection of her work at soundcloud.com forward slash X Carlisa X. Future Prairie is sponsored by Weebly, a powerful e-commerce platform with everything you need to build, market, and grow an online store or website. Built-in email marketing lets you reach your customers and automatically engage with them. Find out more and get 10% off your first site at www.weebly.com forward slash R forward slash Future Prairie. Oh, my God.